Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Certified Forgotten. We are, we check in, it's a good idea to check in, right? Check-ins are, are good. They're part of any healthy relationship. So we always like to start by saying, checking in and letting you know that we're still the only podcast we know that talks about horror films with 10 or fewer reviews and Rotten Tomatoes. If that ever changes, you'll be like the 15th person to know. Honestly, there's like a whole pecking order of people we would probably freak out with. But until that day, I'm here. I'm Matt Monagle. I'm one half of your hosts. I'm joined, as always, by my friend, by my partner in crime, Matt Donato. Uh, Donato, how is your 2024 kicking off? I mean, it couldn't be as bad as 2023, could it? So <laughs> it's getting better. Why not? One step at a time, you know? Dude, I'm, I'm it's, not... like, it's 10 days, man. What the fuck? <laughs> I don't believe in the whole, like, you know, new year, new me kind of stuff. Because, like, I don't know, 23 sucked i don't believe it's going to get immediately better in 2024 but i have optimism that eventually in 2024 things will even out this is going to be somewhat of my year okay well every every year since they turned on the what the mass halcon halcyon collider or whatever has just been we've been in the bad place for a while but it's okay 10 days into the new year we got plenty of time we can write the ship Um, and if the ship goes down then we can at least be one of the survivors that swims to the island speaking of ways that we're going to turn around the new year uh we've got a really cool return guest and we're going to talk about a really cool movie and if that can't get your energy up for 2024 then i don't know what to tell you yeah this is easy for me because this is number three episode returning number three which i think is our our top or tied for top so congratulations number one uh once again you will hear harmony colangelo from this ends at prom harmony welcome back for a third time Yay, I will always be happy to be here as long as I can keep finding bogus movies that no one's heard of. You know what I love, though? Like, legitimately, there are a few people, uh, one of them being yourself and another being Michael Verratti, also friend of the show, friend of everyone here. And like two more people that will just hit me up randomly and be like, yo, I found a perfect movie. And it's so refreshing because sometimes we do need a guest very quickly because we fall mm-hmm. behind on scheduling and things like that. And it's like, it helps so tremendously. So thank you for being proactive and finding weird fucking movies that keep fitting our podcast. My favorite thing about it is that this is now the second time I've gone, let's watch a movie. And I hadn't actually seen it yet. <laughs> oh, really? Nope. Oh, hadn't seen this yet. Okay. Uh, we're going to save that for the movie half, but that's going to be the first question I ask you when we kick it off. Cause that was, Watching this movie, I was like, oh, I totally understand why someone would want to talk about this movie specifically. You went on vibes and you won. So that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, for the uh, for folks that are checking in maybe the, for the first time, I want to remind you, Harmony, this is Harmony's third time on the show. Harmony has guested for uh, Wild Zero, which was episode 43, and then Bit, which was episode 55. Both of those are available in all the places you find podcast episodes. Uh, if you want to go all the way back to Wild Zero, you can hear Harmony talk about her origins as a horror fan and how all of that came to be and kind of the the normal backstory stuff that we do with with the first time guest but today sort of in honor of the film that we're talking about we were like maybe let's talk a little bit about rock musicals uh because that is the film that that we're going to discuss and i think one of those interesting and rare areas where the three the three of our tastes and i don't always have trouble aligning our tastes but probably there's a decent amount of crossover at least in in what kind of rock musicals we like you know, what we look for, things like that. So Harmony, let's start with you. What are some, and I I know that it's actually BJ's poster in the background. I see the Phantom of the Paradise poster back there. So obviously you are a rock musical household. Oh, of course. Like before I came in here, I was like, BJ, I'm going to go talk about vampires and musicals. Do you love me yet? (laughs) 
Um, but yeah, like there's Phantom of the Paradise. There's also like Rocky Horror right there as well. Mm-hmm. So like Phantom of the Paradise is one BJ introduced me to. Rocky Horror is like, oh, that was I was down from like 13 on with that one. But I love rock musicals. I love like a rock opera that doesn't even need a movie form where it's like, oh, classic Alice Cooper or Dream Theater's scenes from a memory. Like there's so many of these like theatrical story driven rock albums that are so uh, we'll say ostentatious, but in the best way possible. Yeah. And like the kind of the dumber the rock opera gets sort of the more fun it it, it has. Like it, 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 it gets rid of the indulgences and just goes down to like, whatever, we're just telling a story. And we're having a stupid good time. And this is one of those kind of movies. That's kind of what Rocky Horror is about. I just I just think that's great. That, that's rad. <laughs> and are you when you think about like when, when somebody says rock musical to you are you thinking that it is a like what is what is that if like what has to be because there's the ones where the band is the one that like writes the musics but it's not necessarily like their album then there's the stuff like you know to talk about the star of today's film uh tommy where it is actually the music from the band and like you're it's sort of a what i think we would now call more of a jukebox musical is there like a mode of that that you are are more drawn to than others not specifically. I've always had a specific love for like theatrical sounding music. Um, that's just like, like I love Jim Steinman. I love Bad Out of Hell. I desperately want to see the Bad Out of Hell musical uh, at some point, which means I'll probably have to make a pilgrimage to Vegas. But um, any kind of like loud theatrical music has always struck me as as fun and quite uh, quite direct, quite simple in a in a way that's endearing because. I just like you to tell me how you're feeling. And that's like the opposite of how most movies are supposed to be, where it's like, no, you can't just have characters tell you how they feel. That's bad character development. But with a musical, like you're feeling things so large and so pronounced that you just have to sing about it. That's just, that's easy. That's digestible. But also it is like triumphant. It's screaming from the rooftops with the loudest possible score. Like, that's 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 great it's so refreshing like it was when i was in high school it probably was in the 70s when they did the tommy movie it was in the 80s when they did this i think it's always going to be a thing that's really really euphoric and great well i just came from what didn't just come from but last night i was able to see mean girls and it's such a random example but looking at mean girls the movie the original one that's not a musical it's mm-hmm. funny. Like it's a better movie. It's a better film. The bullying message, everything comes through and all that stuff. But watching the musical last night, I will still every night of the week, take a lyrical driven kind of like theatrical message because yes, I know I've seen mean girls. I know what it's getting at. I know everything mm-hmm. it's, it's rallying it for and against. And yet hearing it through song is still so much more like emotionally impactful to me. Like it's, that's the one I would watch if I wanted to feel something where Mean Girls mm-hmm. is the one I would want to watch if I just, you know, the non-musical, if I just wanted to kind of laugh and stuff. And yeah, I've always I've always found that like just little even little indie films where it's about just a rock star singing some songs and singing their heart out. It's like I am drawn to that. You know, I'm drawn to mm-hmm. everything about expression of self through music. And I you talking about all the like old school bands, Meatloaf, Steinman, all that stuff. And like Emerson, Lake and Palmer, uh, Carnival 9 is just mm-hmm. one of those ones that just goes through my head and what's all of like 20 minutes, 25 minutes. And it's mm-hmm. just so theatrical. That's everything I want from that kind of stuff. Yeah, I like Harmony that you were talking about sort of the maximalism piece, too, because I've talked a little bit 
on this podcast and elsewhere that I was a, a musical theater kid in high school and college. Um, I auditioned for went out for and got the lead role in uh, the King and I as a junior. In oh, high school. it was a very different, very different time, <laughs> very different time. 2001 it was, a little, it was a little different. Um, in, in hindsight, I had no business doing that, but, um, honestly, when I think about kind of like the stuff that, that really helped me find kind of that niche even before that is I remember, you know, I am the, I am the son of two former, like hardcore hippie parents who are now like devout Catholics. And so they've had quite a journey. Um, but I remember that there was, when growing up, there was this box of cassette tapes that they used to have in the garage and it was all the music that they used to listen to. Right. So like all of the singer songwriter stuff, all of like the weird acid kind of rock stuff that they used to have. And I remember I was mowing lawns when I was like in middle school, just going through my, I would go through my parents' cassette tapes and be like, I, I want, I need to listen to something, have my headphones in. And I found Pink Floyd's The Wall. Um, mm -hmm. And I listened to Pink Floyd's The Wall. It must've been like 14 years old, 13, 14 years old. And that shit blew the, my mind out the side of my head sideways. I thought it was just like the coolest thing, like the most self-indulgent thing I've ever heard. It's that maximalism piece. It's why we love musicals and horror. It's just like the most of it. And so I think that there's always been a part of me um, that that is definitely drawn to to stuff that is that you, you put it well, Harmony. That's just sort of like the most of a thing. And especially in musicals, you know, yeah, there can be sort of the conventional stuff you see on Broadway where there's like characters singing about their love songs. But sometimes it's just like the, you know, we can't just do this by script anymore. We have to have like a rock ballad here because it has to like, where there's going to be pyrotechnics and like a soundstage in the background and like fireworks just because we need to, it's the only way we can express ourselves. That's mm -hmm. a lot of fun. Yeah. I think especially when it like, um, it's certainly when rock musicals started to become um, a thing, I think of like, Fan of the Paradise or Rocky Horror specifically, those are not movies that are made with a large budget. So they had to create spectacle in very different ways. Um, like Tommy was made not because like the script of Tommy is so good. It was made because the who wanted to make Tommy the movie. Um, same thing with like the Sgt. Pepper movie that is not great. Uh, it's just, I think that there's something really elegant and clever about having to make a musical, which is supposed to be about like splendor and decadence and showmanship and having to do that with no money. I think that that is so hard. And so, so it, it feels like a puzzle. It feels like something that you are just trying to solve how to do. Um, and I think that's what our movie today is, does a really, really good job of, but I don't know. I just, there's something so indomitable about like that kind of spirit that I like about, uh, about things like this, especially when it came to like primitive instruments in like the seventies where it's like in terms of production, in terms of how you produced music, it was novel when you started to bring like orchestras into the studio with bands in the sixties. It was fascinating when you started to experiment with different genres and tap dancing and harpsichord and all this other stuff and create more of a, a larger soundscape post the Beatles stopping to tour because you could do that on a record. And I love mixing these genres with rock because it's supposed to be this primal stripped down thing, but that doesn't mean you can't just find ways to make it larger and more splendorous. That's why I gravitate towards. I, I love Stage Fright, not the old school slasher, but the newer. The one musical. with Meatloaf? 
Yeah, the one with Meatloaf, like a yeah. huge cast. It's so good. But I love it for that reason of theater kids doing theater kids stuff. But the killers heavy metal and the clashing mm-hmm. of metal and like all like it's it just makes it so much fun. You get the different kind of tonal differences. You get the different kind of musical approaches. And I, I think that I love a musical that will take those moments to not just be one genre, not just be one thing. And uh, I think going back to what you're saying about, you know, it's so entertaining to watch a low budget, you know, musical, horror musical, whatever kind, uh, because it is just such like a huge feat to accomplish. But I, I think it's also something that tells like a really the mark of a really good filmmaker, I would say, because not only are they making a movie, but they're also composing an entire score. They're telling a story through song. I think that is so much harder to me. And you don't have a budget, number one. You're trying to do all the movie things and the filmmaking things, let alone. And then you just throw an entire set list on top of it and have to throw that in and make that flow. I think when you watch a indie uh, musical and it just works so well, that's how you know like the coming talent is just like, oh yeah, this is like a filmmaker to watch out. Mm-hmm. I can I can hear like Anna and the Apocalypse behind every word you're saying right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Donato wears that on his sleeve, like literally, oh, actually, yeah. now, like, you know, or not your sleeve, sorry, your upper forearm. On my it. flesh. It is literally on painted on my flesh. It's part of a sleeve. It's part of his sleeve, yes. What will eventually be a tattoo sleeve. Mm-hmm. And I, I like the, I like what you said about kind of the, um, the, the compositional piece too, because I think one thing that I, I'm really drawn towards with, with rock musicals is the notion that like we think of a lot of times we think of artists as being people that are producing the music that they're doing. But in a lot of cases, like whatever band you become famous with is a member of, you know, and, and we can think of like, a, you know, a Johnny Greenwood, right. Who started you know famous because of Radiohead, but is now a celebrated both classical composer and film composer in his own right. There is usually a lot more musicality, music education, like musical interest and aptitude there that is fun to watch folks explore. And that can take a, a lot of variety of, of kind of looks like there's a, there's a, a musical that's based on a book called working. If anybody's ever heard of working, which was a collection of essays that were written, I think it was in the 1980s. Um, this anthropologist kind of went around to places in middle America and interviewed people that worked for a living and like took down their stories. And so it's a collection of, of sort of like essays that are written about like what it was like to be a waiter in this part of the world or to be doing something else. Um, and they adapted it into a musical. Uh, James Taylor wrote the music and just kind of like the stuff that he brings as, as sort of a folksy songwriter really elevated it. Mm-hmm. But then I think of one of my favorite musicals, which is chess, you know, two thirds to half of the the band ABBA um, mm-hmm. wrote the music for that. It's about the kind of like the chess tournaments as a microchasm for U.S. and Russian relations in the 1980s. It is bombastic and it is huge and it has like at least three bangers. Most people know it because it's got one night at Bangkok. So even if you don't know chess, you actually know chess. But it's just it's so fun to listen to to career musicians step outside of the boxes that they've been put in and see how much more these folks have to offer and what other musical ideas are kind of kicking around up there. Oh, totally. Like there's so many examples of that, whether that be like um, Phineas and Ferb, which has the guy from uh, my was it my crazy ex-girlfriend and also found him fountains of Wayne. Um, Trent Reznor's obviously like he's he, at this rate, he might get an EGOT. Like he's yeah. a Tony away from getting an EGOT, which is insane. Um, Craig of the Creek, which I love very much has a musical episode. And then the musical movie it's done by my dude, Jeff Rosenstock, who is just the best. Um, I think that there's just so many ways that a musician is able to express themselves outside of the genre that they are known for. 
and being given the scope of story, given uh, a new environment in which to apply their music is such a fascinating it's almost like an exercise in creativity and pushing oneself, which kind of comes to the, with the indulgence of what like a rock opera is. Mm-hmm. And you hope that they're having a blast doing it too. Oh, like that's course. the whole point to me of just, you said like yeah. all these musicians taking on something different. And I mean, as recently as like studio six, 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 like Dave Grohl got to be a metalhead for a little bit again. And you mm-hmm. know, he's, he's done Probot and he's done little projects here and there with that, but you know, getting to record a whole album as dream widow and, it just sounds nothing like the stuff they're doing now, which has gone like more alternative than the rock stuff. So yeah, I'm a sucker for any kind of musician showing up in a movie, whether it's a musical or not, and getting to like do something different. Uh, There's this, there's one called suck, which is a uh, horror vampire musical rock and opera, whatever you want to say. Like it's actually everything that this movie is, but without the snooker and like, sorry. It's everything this movie is without the snooker. Yep. Snooker is like 80 fucking percent of this movie. How do you? That's uh, exactly that. So, so all, right, all right. All right. All right. Yeah, sorry, it's like sorry, 20% sorry. of this movie. Okay. Fair but, enough. But like Moby shows up as a metalhead throwing me at the audience. Like he's Steve Aoki with a cake. And like, like that gets me like Moby is not known for that kind of stuff. But when like somebody wants to go do something else and be like, no, there's another type of music that I can go throw out there. Like I I'm, I'm a sucker for that immediately. Mm-hmm. So when, when y'all are maybe kind of like watching um, something, discovering something, this movie today, obviously is I think a new discovery for all of us. Um, How, like, what is your process for sort of absorbing a new uh, rock musical, a new movie musical into sort of your collection or lexicon? Is it like love at first sight? Do you need to kind of listen to stuff? I ask because Donato knows that I'm not the world's biggest fan of Anna and the Apocalypse, but I'm starting to like think I need to go back and rewatch it and certainly listen to the music a little bit. But I'm I'm sort of curious if if for for y'all because you know music and and movies are kind of like the the hyper powered version of both. Do you know kind of instantly? Is there sort of the same like I revisited, I, I thought about it, I might have changed my mind because I feel like with a musical for me, I'm like I'm either it's like it's either immediate yes or it's probably something I'm not going to ever circle around. And there's just something about that combination that my first instinct usually doesn't change in the way that it might with other movies. So Harmony, starting with you, is it like do you know immediately or do you do you find your tastes change a little bit over time um it it depends some some come easier than others um i think the first thing i notice is like sonically how does it sound like how are the songs written what instruments do they use what is the tone um how are the singers themselves like i'm a sucker for character voices and the movie that we're going to discuss today is basically a bunch of character actors having the time of their life mm-hmm. uh which is so my thing but I think that there needs to be something to hook me, whether that be the story, the lyrics, the music, something is got to click immediately and make me come back and then reanalyze the additional parts of it. Mm. So I'm sure that there's examples, but I couldn't think of what they are off the top of my head for where something didn't quite work for me, but then grew on me because I don't know. I, I like all all sorts of music. I've been putting together a playlist for our Patreon all day that is basically like, here's a bunch of songs by bands that do not sound like what they normally sound like. And that includes like the first Smash Mouth album where they are a kick-ass punk band. Um, that first album's really good. Or like, here's Cyndi Lauper doing a country album. Um, by the way, the first Goo Goo Dolls album was like this trash hardcore punk band in the, like, the late 80s. 
just I want to hear all of these different genres and sounds and have people experiment with them until they find the thing that works for them. That's fascinating to me. And I think musicals operate sort of the similar, a similar way where I want to find all of the pieces that come together and work for me. Hmm. Yeah. For me, you can get away with more as a movie. If your musical elements are on par uh, mm-hmm. I think the easiest example for me is when we did the episode with uh, Cezan and we did Don't Go in the Woods uh, by from Vincent D'Onofrio. And I mean, it's a rough around the edges movie. If we're not looking at the music, it's sure. very much low budget, just some people in the woods. Uh, logic is a little out there. It's, it's, it's a rough experience if you're just looking at a movie, but seeing it a second time. Uh, so like the first time it really didn't click with me in a certain way. I was like, I like the music, but the movie's just not good enough to get there. And then we rewatch it for the podcast. I talk on the episode about it a little bit. And like, I came around on it more because the music was in a place that like, it is telling a pretty interesting story and it is put together. Like it's composed very well. Um, Mm -hmm. So seeing that a second time and really digesting that like an album versus, you know, movie music separate. I think that gave me a reappreciation, let's say like for a movie like that, but it's also really like easy to lose me on a musical too, because like if your first two songs aren't there, like you've I'm out, like you're not, you need to help me. You need, you need to get me Mm -hmm. in those first few songs. Uh, After that, it it, it becomes a struggle. I think. I don't want you to take this wrong way, Donato, but I, I don't think of you as a particularly tough sell on movie musicals. I feel like like in a good <laughs> yeah. way, like I feel like you're usually when I talk to you about any kind of like musicals I've seen, especially if they have a foot in the genre world, you're, you're you usually come from a place of enthusiasm. I just feel like that's a niche that you really like. So I'm, I'm kind of surprised to hear you say that you have sort of like that, that two track uh, maximum in terms of, you know, like reading the first 30 pages of a book and then being like, nope, didn't hook me for you. It's the first two, two songs of a musical. Yeah, like two to three songs, because, because like that's setting the tone for the rest of the movie. And if you if you don't mm-hmm. hit me in the right way, like that's it's just like an album. Like if you're listening to an album and the first two to three songs aren't pulling you in, like what are the chances you're going to keep going through it? Like that's. Oh, yeah. I, I, yeah. I feel like that's kind of an important thing. Al- album structure is just as important as like musical structure. Like a good album needs a good opener. If you don't have a very good opener, then it sets a bad tone for your album. Like that's that's just the same thing for any kind of piece of music is you need a hook, you need some sort of energy, you need some sort of anticipation, world building, whatever it be, it needs to set the tone right. Well, we're thinking about like bands that have or artists that do have kind of like their vanity, you mentioned Sgt. Pepper's a little bit earlier, Um, you know, examples like that. I'm I'm curious if there are any like bands, Studio 666 is the the one that you dropped, Donato. If there's any other like artists, vanity projects movies built around a, a particular artist that really moves the needle for y'all because i'm i'm kind of like in my head trying to feel like if i can make a case for tenacious d and the pick of destiny i'm not oh, sure i can i was I'm just gonna sure, say i'm not sure that destiny, i can yeah. i'm not sure that i can it's i will say pick of destiny a thousand percent that movie is so okay. dumb and again the music works though in that tenacious d kind of way like Kyle and J- and Jack Black are very good at being entertaining and mm-hmm. musicians like they can do both so they have the right sensibility to take us from start to finish through the musical journey that I think a lot of people don't have. I, I think they are extremely good at it. If you are into their sense of humor and what they do like that, that is the major caveat there. Yeah. Is there something about metal that makes that easier? Just like, because it is such a flamboyant or, or metal rock, whatever you, I'm not a, I'm not a genre purist, obviously. I mean, metal is kind of inherently a dumb genre about a lot of variety of topics. Cause like, 
It's about singing about like demons and gods and slaying things. And I'm going to still throw up the horns and rock my face off. It's inherently like got really straightforward and also really visually stunning imagery. I think that if you accept that metal's kind of fucking stupid, then you enjoy it more. And it lends itself quite well to, to musicals, I think. And that's the I, Deathgasm is not a musical, but music is a huge part yeah. of it. But yeah. like that is the thing. It, it, it is understanding that metal is inherently dumb in some ways. It is, you know, I'm sure plenty of other people will argue the opposite. And I agree. I appreciate metal a great deal and have plenty of examples that I would argue like, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of deep meaning here and stuff. But there is a <laughs> there is a subset of metal that is very dumb. And like when you clue into the stories and the backstories behind it. I mean, like, you know, Lords of Metal is one thing alone and that gets dark and evil and all that shit. But like, you know, Deathgasm hits on that comedy element. And is it easier to watch because of it? Yeah, because it's some dumb metalheads who get the wrong message and take things the wrong way. Like, that's mm-hmm. part of the culture. And that is part of the things that is both entertaining and frustrating about being a metal fan. I mean, aren't you also a huge fan of Metalocalypse? Fuck yeah. Oh, ma- massive. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah, same same kind of thing. <laughs> It knows it's dumb. Brandon mm-hmm. Small is very good. <laughs> yep. And that's one of the areas that Donato and I have our biggest, uh, I think that probably one of the OG points of crossover for you and I was uh, our shared love of Todd versus the Book of Pure Evil, the musical episode of that show as well, which is just like, just perfection. Just just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful things. Every TV show that runs even more than a season should do a musical episode, I personally think. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, nobody nobody hires me to greenlight these things. I just want to be the person, the consultant that you come in and basically like sit in a room and I'm like, you need a musical episode. That's the only advice I ever give. And there's somebody's just calling me in to, to uh, have outside people confirm what they already know, that it's time to make those fuckers and Breaking Bad sing is what I'm saying. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Could you imagine the fucking Hill House episode music? If it was a musical, <laughs> like just one episode of Hill House, just fucking dark and depressing and a Mike Flanagan horror musical. What is what is musicals if not monologue set to music, right? So mm-hmm. there we go. Mike Flanagan's already there. All right, I feel like we've we've we're itching we're itching to talk about the the film uh, harmony that you brought us today. So we're gonna take a quick break, and when we come back, we're gonna put this theory, all these conversations we've had about rock and movie musicals, into practice, and discuss uh, among other things, Snooker, which is eighty percent of today's mm-hmm. movie which apparently is is Donato's was the least interesting part of that for you. So when we come back, it's going to be time to talk about Billy the Kid and the Green Bay's Vampire. Okay, welcome back. So this week on Certified Forgotten, we're going to talk about Billy the Kid and the Green Bay's Vampire. Sometimes I write my own synopses for these. Sometimes I pull things that I find online. IMDb has pulled a random user synopsis for their uh, for for their profile for this film, and I liked it enough that I'm just I'm going to read it here. So this comes courtesy of a uh, Roshin Moriarty. Uh, we have their email address thanks to IMBD too. I don't know why you did that. That doesn't seem like a great idea. But Roshin writes, cocky, flatulent, cockney snooker player Billy Kidd accepts the challenge of a grudge match from Maxwell Randall, also known as the Green Bay's Vampire, six-time world champion. The loser will never play professional snooker again. Oh, the humanity. 
brilliant, succinct writing from uh, IMDb user Roisin Moriarty. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Harmony, I said I was going to ask you kind of the uh, the audaciousness of picking a film that you didn't know that you hadn't already seen. So what made this the one you wanted to bring to us? Well, uh, I I don't even remember where I found this movie. It was just on my watch list for a long time because it wasn't on Tubi for a long time, which is where you can currently get it. Uh, I found a vampire versus a cowboy and went, huh, that's interesting. Oh, they're playing billiards. That's also interesting. And it's a musical. Okay, this is a very at the very least going to be interesting. There's no way this can't somehow catch my attention. And I put it on. BJ and I are watching it. And this is after I've already talked to Donato about us doing it at like Thanksgiving. I'm like, anyway, here's a movie. We should do it. Um, I put it on and we're like a couple songs in it. I'm like, wait, is this shot really well? Like, wait, is their camera work good? Like the lighting's good for this movie has no like and the opening credits do not do you any favors. It's like public access. There's just names on screens. It looks terrible. But like by the time you get to like the third song, fourth song, wherever it is, where it's Supersonic Sam's Cosmic Cafe, I'm like, oh, this man with the sidebirds is taking me to church. I am so in. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. So Donato, first impressions from you. And then I want to dig a little bit more into um, the surprisingly well shot film that we had today. I I didn't know what to expect at any point coming into this because Harmony is 100% right. We were talking at Thanksgiving and they were just like, yeah, no, I've got a movie I haven't even watched yet. It sounds insane. And I was like, that does sound insane. You should watch that and let me know. So I get this excited text later and I'm just like, oh, so we have to cover this now. Um, first impressions is it's everything you expect from what you have described which again is completely unexpected because I've never seen a movie like this. I mean, the comparison points are out there, obviously, but it's a sports drama. It's a musical. It is the horror comedy. It is a vampire, but there's no blood sucking. Like there's so many things going on here that don't make sense, but it's one of those rare cases where so many stars just align and it is a once in a million kind of thing. Like this shouldn't work. None of that. This should work. Mm -hmm. And you know, you have a, I think you have a moment about halfway through where you just kind of take stock and say, the music is actually really good here. Um, it, it, it's going to be up, you know, it is a lot of snooker playing. Maybe that's your thing. Maybe it isn't. I wasn't bothered by it. I was just like making the joke by it before. Like I, you know, it, it is well shot. It is fun watching everything happen here. Like it's a fucking dead vampire under a snooker table. Like, like that mm-hmm. is, that's good. Comp- that is good visual <laughs> storytelling. That is good. So I like the insane reaches this movie takes and like, is it my favorite horror musical? No, it's not my favorite, but am I utterly impressed by what I have seen? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is something I would add to my collection. And I, I, I'm sure that both of you know some of this stuff for those that are, that are kind of curious about, okay, there's a vampire, there's Billy, Billy, the kid, Billy kid. Um, I'll, I'll do my best to demystify at least the, the vampire portion of this. So this musical is partially inspired by a real-life snooker player. His name is Ray Reardon. Uh, he was a professional snooker player during the 1970s, and he went by the name of Dracula because he had a prominent widow's peak and uh, sharp eye teeth, the, the Dracula teeth. He played that up. He would come you know, and play tournaments in, in capes and things like that and really played, by, by all accounts, a lovely human being, you know, especially for being a professional athlete in the 1970s, very, very chill. Um, but he was, I mean, in, in a sport that didn't even have professional rankings until the night, I think 1976, when Reardon was the first person to ever be named 
you know, the number one overall snooker player in the world. I mean, he was kind of the the person that helped put this sport on the map. And so a lot of theatricality, um, a lot of like, you know, fun pop and circumstance with him as a professional athlete. And the film obviously takes sort of a more like, well, kind of what if he was a vampire? Um, the, the fact that he, the, the, the fact that uh, Maxwell is a vampire is actually a surprisingly subdued element in this movie. I think Donato, mm-hmm. you put it, you put it best. Like this is kind of a sports movie, like more than anything else, which was absolutely shocking to me. It's kind of like a class warfare. Again, I think of chess, like mm-hmm. class, class coming together over, you know, table games kind of thing. Um, but I don't, if you, if you heard what we were saying and I told you that there's elements of fact in all of this, I hope I didn't ruin it for you listeners. You should definitely, definitely go see, still watch it because it is a vampire who's playing billiards. That's kind of, that's fun, but it is based at least partially on some truth. Mm-hmm. No, like comparing it to chess though, is I think the best way for people. Cause the way I see it online, especially on like the DVD that I bought uh, is that it's Rocky horror meets little shop of horrors. And that's not at all what this is like. Yeah. It's Rocky horror in that it's like kind of ramshackle and cheap, but no, it's way closer to chess because like these are theater songs. This yeah. is minimal set design. It's a bunch of stuff shot like music videos. Like so much of this stuff is lit like a Bauhaus music video. It is like a concept that they decided to turn into something bigger than just a concept and the concept itself kind of doesn't work, but because you went so hard, it works tremendously. Well, and the concept is, you know, Billy the Kid in the title, it does allude to Westerns. Like there are lines in the film and I, I forget if it's part of lyrics or just dialogue, but like it calls out the fact of how much this is like Billy the Kid watching a Western and gunslingers and all this stuff. And the generational stuff is all there. But then it absolutely is the sports drama it is sold as. Like the conflict here is just about a snooker tournament. It's not about like even a vampire having to kill people and play snooker. It's just about the tournament. It's just mm-hmm. about the rookie coming yeah. to beat the old vet and what that means. So like you get both of those elements and like the whole devil went down to Georgia thing about it too is just like I everything comes together in once again a way that should not fucking work. And you're talking about one of those miracle movies where Harmony, you just said it, like it goes so hard into what it wants to do and it doesn't care if it works or not. And that's why it does. It just goes full force into it. Like they have a warehouse to shoot it. Like that's it. Everything is in this dark, dingy warehouse, but because of the lighting and the setups, it's, it it feels like different, you know, his Billy's apartment is absolutely just a room in the warehouse, but Mm -hmm. it feels like an apartment, like where they hold the tournament is absolutely just a room in that same warehouse, but it looks completely different. Just the lighting, the setting, there's a lot of thought put into that stuff. The the little technical flourishes. It almost feels very um, dystopian in a way, which Mm -hmm. adds to the like class warfare between like these tattooed shitty punks versus the, the upper class bourgeoisie. And it's like, that's not necessarily what people watch this movie for. They watch it because like, look at all these silly things that are happening at once. But that is the underlying themes of like the conflict and the setting. And I think that that's also really great that this goes far deeper than you would initially give it credit for. Well, I would, I, that's actually kind of what hooked me a bit because I was, I was soft out after like the first 15 or 20 minutes. I think we've kind of hit on like the opening credits don't do it any favors. And there's kind of like singular location. 
And the acting, depending on your perspective, ranges from the highly stylized to the occasionally stiff. So like you can you can decide as a viewer where you fall on that kind of spectrum. I think there's a really good argument to be made that everybody's the artificialness is there um, intentionally and that that, you know, that's that's part and parcel of what they're trying to do. But I think what what did kind of like I picked up um, during the what's the name of the game room, the like Cascade Palace or, or whatever they called it. Uh, when we meet Billy the Kid's entourage for the first time and they're all in front of these, you know, like cutting edge, probably Pong or fucking, uh-huh. you know, Donkey Kong screens that they're playing where it really kind of leans into the like the 1984, like Ridley Scott commercial kind of like dystopia vibe and look and feel for it. And that became, you know, thinking about uh, something like Quadrophenia and sort of like the mods versus the, the, you know, the old class thing. I was sort of like, oh, in its own way, this is as much a British film about youth and revolt as insert literally anything from the last 30, you know, like pick whatever higher, high, highly stylized film you want. It's doing it in a very weird way with a very unique subject matter, but it's tapping into sort of like the anti-consumerism 1980s. I had to like, I had to pause the movie to Google like green stamps. Cause I was like, there's been like three songs about green stamps. I don't know what the fuck green stamp is. And I learned about it. it. It was, we called them uh, the grocery store that I went to price smashers, which is like you fill up a sheet full of coupe like stickers that you would get for spending X amount of dollars. And you would turn those in and have cash prizes. So like it's, it's rampantly kind of engaging with the disassociated youth consumer culture and that's subtext, but it's really interesting subtext. And what I realized it, it for me, I realized, Oh, if we're doing this, then I am going to start giving you the benefit of the doubt on all the other stuff that may or may not be working for me. And once that happened, the whole movie kind of locked into place for me. Oh, for sure. Uh, I don't, I just, that's something that I didn't pay attention to initially when we were watching it. Cause I was just giddy going like, why is it good? How is it good? And yeah. like, I'm turning to BJ going like, I'm not just a sucker who's caught up in the moment. Like these are genuinely good songs. Right. But then I'm watching it. And it's like, Oh no, like they, they make no qualms about that being the core of the movie. Like even like late in the game where it's like the second to last song where you have punks quacking at them in like what is essentially like a waiting room during like halftime of snooker. Like there's constant animosity and it's not stupid about it. Yeah. I, I, one of the opening lines that we get from Maxwell when he's first being interviewed and, you know, he's again, talking to the reporter and they immediately start needling him about snooker and how the game is changing. And Maxwell just shouts out like they have green hair, like something like that. Like he's so <laughs> mad that the fact that somebody good at snooker just ha- is a punk and has green hair. And it is that very much again, way more old school. Obviously this is an older film, but the generational gap there and the way that it was perceived. And, you know, my parents are still people of like, well, you, you have a job, you can't have tattoos, stuff like that. Like it's, you know, it is an old school mentality that has not been shaken, but to see it so like blatant here is like, oh yeah, it was a much bigger deal. Like this whole punks versus again, the upper class, the upper crust, and it'll never go away. But you know, it was, it was, it was interesting to see it here in like a little time capsule kind of way. Oh yeah. And like, I love that we're so, I, I think it's safe to say that all three of us are pretty well enraptured by this movie and it's about snooker, a game that we don't really play in this country. Yes. I mean, I, I, I'm fucking terrible. I'm more likely to, to go see some fucking rowing movie and be like, oh yeah, that's me. I could do that. Like I'm fucking terrible at pool. And so watching a pool movie, like 
just watching the I could, like I it would they would have canceled the production on the amount of takes it would have gotten just to do one of like the medium shots of like where the body's in frame but like as long as as long as you can do cutaways for all of this like I could do it but yeah it it does again that's the sports moviness of it it actually makes look pool look pretty good like it's not cheap people I don't know if the actors were making those shots I don't know who was making those shots but people were making those shots those were fucking hard shots that some of them were making and the biggest surprise for me again is just how good of a sports movie it is on top of all the other weird stuff that's going on. How many sports musicals are they even? I'm sure there are some, but I don't know of any off the top of my head. I I've, I was racking my brain before we started recording. I can't think of anything. <laughs> yeah. That, that usually doesn't cross over too well. I'm sure on Broadway, there's way more, but like as a, as a movie that really doesn't cross over, but I, I mean, Yankees, talk, I guess that's it. It's but like talking Yankees. about the cinematography like that. I, I, I do wonder if that was them actually hitting their shots because there were a lot of wide frames there and it didn't look like they were swapping anybody with like a bad wig or something. And to make the shots, like it looked like the, the regular people, which only adds another level of complexity and hilarity to like, okay, we have to cast this musical with people who are extremely good at snooker. And like that pool has to be like the shallow end of a fucking kiddie pool. Oh yeah. And like, mind you, they also have to be able to sing. Everyone in this movie yeah. can sing. And right. a couple of people are really, really good. <laughs> Yeah. And I think harmony to that point too, like good in different styles of music. Right. Cause I, again, like listening to this, there, there was a part of me at about the 15 minute mark that was like, I know what this is. I've seen direct to video kind of stuff like this before. I'm worried that I'm out. And they just kept doing things that were so clearly stylistically intentional. And I think the other one, um, I can't remember the name of the number, but the, the, uh, something about bite. What is the, Oh, the, like, uh, I bite back. I bite back. Thank you. Thank you. The big Alan Armstrong, uh, number as Maxwell, um, I bite back was stylistically so different than every other song that, that came, that happened in the show. And they were like full mask off libretto. Like, you know, it, it was Gilbert and Sullivan style, like with flourishes of prog rock in it. And I was like, Oh, okay. All of this is like, I, I, another moment of like, I give you the benefit of the doubt. I see what you're doing and I like it, but that those, that's a tough, like that's opera. That is opera that they were singing there. And the two leads needed to be able to sing that really well. Like it's one thing when you have people that are, you know, performing in sort of the high falsetto style of like the Jesus Christ superstarness of it all. You can find people that, that do that because that's what they do. But there's an, an element of flexibility to the styles of singing that this movie required song to song that I was really impressed by. Oh, yeah. Um, like a few songs later, when we're in uh, Billy the Kid's apartment and they have the like um, number about how T.O. is going to take him to the top. That mm -hmm. starts as like a slow, very like off rhythm Western and then goes into this huge anthemic the Broadway number. It's so good. <laughs> it's worth noting. Real, just real quick, sorry, Donato. It's worth noting that the music is by George Fenton, who has been nominated five times in his career for Academy Awards. He Good. Wrote the, he wrote the scores to Dangerous Liaisons and Gandhi are probably the two that most people would recognize. <laughs> Very stylistically, musically similar to, to the movie we watched today. Oh, of course. <laughs> but the legitimacy of it all. <laughs> Correct. Sorry, Donato, I, I, please. No, I was going to say, I, I think my favorite, though, like, you know, mentioning the songs and stuff like that is... Uh, the, the announcer when he's announcing the snooker tournament and bringing out, you know, Maxwell and Billy and his name is uh, Neil McCall. Big Jack J is his character. And just one more different element of the film. It does feel so big and grand and like 
dig it like like showmanship there is like almost carnival-esque in the way that it turns into like a ringmaster commanding the room and i like that that was my song that was the one that i was like oh yeah. shit like the one that starts mm-hmm. with the quacks amazing love it 10, mm-hmm. 10 out of 10 i'm just like again what is happening mm-hmm. but to see like, talking about the musicianship and talking about someone being good at singing good at what they're doing like that was the number where it just went like jaw to the floor like oh no this is a really good musical and again to say what you will about the film itself and following whatever fucking narrative is happening uh no the music is good when you have a number like that that just kind of like like fucking railroads the entire thing like stop dead in your tracks i'm like that i did not expect that from what was on the poster here <laughs> mm-hmm. and like he's giving like very uh, a very caesar flickerman from hunger games kind of presentation like lots of teeth and screaming while doing this wonderful character voice but um once you get to where the like snooker showdown's going to be it is there's some really excellent camera work in that whole scene because like 20 like 20 minutes of the movie maybe maybe an upwards of that takes place in that one location and there's a oneer. I think it's like where it's like kid to break where like he's I think losing like eight frames to nothing and he's about to get knocked out of the tournament or something. Maybe it's four four at that point. And there's a oneer where like the camera is coming down from like up on the balconies where like the fancy like watchers, the bourgeoisie or whatever up there watching. It'll come down. It'll come on Billy Kid's face. It like circles his face in this really disorienting fashion while seamlessly going up to the other side of the balcony to like look at all the punks. It comes back and without cutting once there were no balls on the table and then they set them all up. Oh, my. Like that is really impressive for a movie like this to be pulling off. And you had a uh, you had a, a thing there too, which I thought was really interesting. Is the film is sly in its in its kind of like last two musical numbers, and that there are moments where you know Billy Kidd is sort of like his career, his entire professional career is flashing before his eyes, and they spend a lot of time on him. And I was like, up oh, musical numbers coming, and the, and then it didn't. And I was like, all right, here's the song where he's going to be like, I'm going to get my shit together, and it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And so there's this prolonged scene where Maxwell is basically running the table. Where it feels the movie's basically like he's gonna sing. Nope, he's not gonna sing. We just gotta watch him lose. He's gonna nope, he's not gonna sing. And I thought that was really clever because you kept waiting for like that comeback moment to happen in music. And they were like, nope, the the turnaround, yes, when Billy starts playing well, he does have a number, but the turnaround doesn't happen in song. It happens outside of song. And I was mm-hmm. that was interesting. I, I did not expect that. I thought there was gonna be a dramatic piece where suddenly, you know, he finds his inner strength. But no, nope, we just watched him sweatily almost lose for a good five minutes. Mm-hmm. And we're just watching a game at that point. <laughs> yeah, we are. We're just watching snooker. And I was like, I, am I into snooker? Can I be into this? Should I watch this? <laughs> well, I was going to say too, like, I love the vampirisms of this film. Again, not being, having to feed, not being, you know, he, one of the lines that Dracula, or not Dracula, but the vampire is singing about is like, I love garlic. I'm fine with this. Like I was born here. I wasn't born in Transylvania. Like it mm-hmm. is hilarious that they strip away all the vampirism and things that we think about. And the two things I really love about it is number one, he's wearing vampire fangs to shoot a commercial and then just takes them out. And his other fangs are just under them, just like smaller. Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah, this is mm-hmm. what vampires really look like, you dummies. Um, <laughs> and then we are watching, like, as you just alluded to, the third act of the film is just watching a snooker tournament. That's all we are. Except for the fact that a vampire is cheating using magic or like some of it and like convincing him he can't see the balls and all this shit. Like through song, obviously we're seeing it. So I, I again, I admire a film that looks at its genre elements and just says, yeah, we don't need those. Those are like, you know, we just, he's a vampire, but like, 
whatever. I don't give a shit about all the other stuff. Like, we, we don't have the money for blood. We can't make corpses. What are you talking about? Like, no, they're going to mm-hmm. play snooker and that's it. I mean, it kind of repurposes like vampire lore in a completely different way where like traditionally a lot of vampires and they're not my favorite vampire movies, but they live in castles and come from money and they're posh and well-dressed and they're, you know, everyone loves them because they've been glamored and they want a little, they want to be Renfield, you know, that's, that's an element of it, but also like they're feasting on like the poor young people, like that's a huge element of the movie where this, you know, the Wednesday man or whatever his name is, he's not a vampire, but he's in cahoots with the vampire because he just wants to ruin Billy Kid's life because he hates him. And like, they have this tremendous long con about doing it. And it's all about just keeping like young people and the working class down. It, they're, they're, it's, it's good at it. It uses vampire lore really well without being obvious. It does. The metaphorical feeding. Yeah. Well, and I want to I want to talk a little bit about the two central performances, too, because this is, I mean, as much as a rock musical can be kind of a two hander, right? It's really just like these two people in, in a kind of opposition to each other. Um, I have never actually seen Quadrophenia, which I know is is, is a cardinal sin if you grew up uh, in, in the UK. And I'm sure our, our mutual friend of the site, Richard Whitaker, will come for me at some point when he listens to this and hears that. Um, so this was, as, as a matter of fact, when I was kind of like, okay, I know, like, obviously I know who Phil Daniels is. I was like, what do I, what do I personally know him from? It turns out it's just Park Life by Blur. Yeah. It's, that's really, that's the only firsthand experience I have with any of his work outside of this. And then there's Alan Armstrong, who is, I think Harmony, you said it a long time ago, a, a, a really venerable character actor that's doing like really good character actor shit. So, you know, it, Talk a little bit about for for where these performances sit for both of you, because I think they're they're more essential to the success of this and making this all work um, than people might think going in. I mean, they need to sell you on the movie because if they're not like in terms of singers, these two are not even like the strongest singers in the cast. Um, I think T.O. is good. I think the news reporter who gets like the titular Billy the Kid track with like a very large husky voice is great. Um, the opera singer's good. Supersonic Sam has a voice that just, I love him. He's marvelous. Um, these guys are not the best singers, but like their character work is tremendous. Um, you have, you know, arrogance in two different forms. One is youthful. One is, you know, sitting from a comfortable place for several decades. Um, like I, for the record, have not seen Quadrophenia either. I have also only know him from Park Life. Um, he gets one. He gets up when he wants to, except on Wednesdays when he's rudely awakened by the dustman. You know, I know all of the the rambling Cockney monologues of Park Life by heart, but they are so essential to embodying their characters because they're actually quite similar to each other but in very different ways and i think that's why it makes it a really compelling rivalry like they just they just viscerally hate each other because of who they are but they have very similar arrogance in common yeah i was gonna say you have to have that arrogance because we've talked about the music they are good singers do not get me wrong but they're not even the best uh singers in the actual entire film but the sports side of it because once again this is also a sports film like they sell the rivalry very well they sell the building up they sell the evil villain who is you know literally a vampire so you know he's he's the monster whatever he's the you bad guy say. like he's the bad guy <laughs> they literally show it to you but without that kind of arrogance as you've already pointed out 
you don't want to root for Billy. Like you need that to root for Billy, but at the same time you see what Billy is willing to throw away and his ego and what he can possibly do to his entire career because he thinks he's the next hot shit. And you get both of those working in tandem in the exact way you just said, and it elevates the sports, anything you want to say about it, like as a sports fan, as someone who is just gearing up for like playoff football and stuff like that it matters so much because if that isn't there, it's just another sports movie. It's just depicting what happens. But when you're actually invested in who wins and who loses and the stakes are so high, they do a good job of that. I, th- I think that's actually the best thing they do together. Their chemistry playing off each other um, through songs, through everything is establishing the rivalry and making us actually give a shit about watching an entire third act. That is just a snooker tournament. That, yeah, like, that, I mean- that is an accomplishment. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, like we kept calling this a sports movie and, and it is, but also it's sports entertainment. Like these are these yeah. big pro wrestling type characters and it is very simple storytelling of a good guy and a bad guy. And they want to beat the other one because I hate you and I want to be the best. It is pro wrestling in its purest essence with these large, colorful characters of a cowboy versus a vampire. That's just what their gimmick is. And that's so easy to understand. So what you're saying is there needs to be a remake starring Chris Jericho as the vampire someday, I think. I mean, I here's the thing. He probably would be really good at it because he, he actually it's unfortunate. He actually can sing. Oh, God damn it. It's unfortunate. I yeah, I don't want to watch that, but I would watch that. There is a. Um, there's an interview from a few years ago with Daily Mail where, again, Ray Reardon, who is the person that the the. the green blaze vampires based off of basically says just that he's like, this is because they're talking and asking him to reflect on his history with snooker and like how it's changed and everything. And he's like, what happened to the characters? Like, this is entertainment. Like why aren't people, you know, creating characters for the public to enjoy? Uh, I was trying to, to, to find his exact quote, but that's sort of the, the gist of it. And I think that goes really in line with what the two of you say. And it makes me think of in a weird kind of way. I found myself thinking a lot. Um, and Donato, I think you'll appreciate this because I knew you kind of grew up watching this too, Harmony. I don't know if you're ever a World Series of Poker per- person, but like the parallel in these two things, the parallel between the two is like the 70s. It went from sort of this like renegade outlaw thing to like a little bit more mainstream. And there's this granddaddy of, of poker named Doyle Brunson, who sort of is the stand in of like class and history. And there's all these like asshole bad boys. And it was just, it's, as I was thinking about that, I was like, that's the American version of this, but it's so universal. We've mentioned wrestling, we've mentioned poker, we've mentioned snooker. Like this movie taps into why we love sports that is beyond the specific game and the, you know, the equipment that's used. And that's, that's, there are fucking real sports movies that don't understand the appeal of sports. There is like baseball and football movies that don't get why we like sports as much as this vampire musical does. Like, that's embarrassing. If I made a movie and I it wasn't as good as a sports movie and it wasn't as good as this, I would just quit. I would quit making movies. <laughs> but but for real though, like a lot of my favorite sports movies are for sports that I don't really care that much about. Like I love Rocky. I don't give a shit about boxing. Yeah. I don't I'm not a huge baseball person, yet I love Bad News Bears. I think it's one of the best sports movies ever made. And it's all about characters and overcoming and not necessarily even winning in the case of both those movies you can lose and it still be a compelling story it's about the adversity and the trials and the characters and so many sports movies just don't they don't seem to understand that it's more about the sport and less about the people themselves playing them 
Yeah, Eddie the Eagle is mine. I had no affinity for skiing or any of that, and mm-hmm. Eddie the Eagle like blew me away. And just what you said, it's compelling. It's the it's the human story. It's somebody achieving, striving, and overcoming insurmountable odds, and that is what this has. Like you know, going back to Monogle saying like World Series of Poker and stuff. Like this is Mike Manisau getting absolutely destroyed by a rookie. Like like I I've, yeah. I've watched this happen, and a hundred percent like characters make it better like world series of poker you would watch a guy like mike manisau who was just an asshole he was the yeah. veteran asshole he would mouth off 24 7 but despite him being a piece of shit on the poker table the camera was always on because it's just drama it's good it's what it is you need that there like if everyone just sits there and shuts up and just plays poker am i watching that for an hour no of course you need the, you need the characters you need somebody to get up in the camera's face and like just draw the audience in so I think this movie does that by giving I mean, us a, fuck, a fucking vampire. <laughs> yes. Does Does anybody know the name of a male tennis player other than John McEnroe? Because I don't. I'll get Agassi. I'll go with Agassi. Okay, sure. <laughs> I'm a sports uh, guy. I'm a sports uh, guy. Fair, so. fair enough. <laughs> Carlos Alcaraz, but only because I watched the Netflix series. So that's all I got. Uh, new petition, though. Uh, World Series of Poker, they need to have musical numbers. The If you're going do to it. participate, you need to have a song, a winning song prepared to be able to do at the drop of a hat um, and a losing song prepared to do at the drop of the hat. And there will be an on-site pianist who's ready to like accompany you, like an audition pianist that's just like, just give me the sheet music and let's go. So, again, we're spinning gold here. I hope can, that the... Uh, can we do some celebrity stunt casting where we get uh, Jennifer Tilly in there? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> As a vampire... Yes, of and course. She's, she's a fucking, she is a world, she's been super talented at a World Series of Poker. So. Perfect. She, she plays, right? Tonight I know she plays on, poker, yeah, I just yeah, don't yeah, know yeah. where. She's she's married to Phil Locke, right? I I, I think it's Phil Locke. Uh, yeah. But she, yes, yeah, she's married to a poker player, so she, she got way Chucky. more into it. Donata, what are you talking about? Sorry. I'm, I'm, <laughs> That's apologies. <laughs> I broke canon, my bad. You're, no, you're, kayfabe. Kayfabe. Oh, God, oh, no. <laughs> All right, so this is the this is the point on the podcast that we always get to where we say, how do we find an audience um, for this particular film? And uh, Harmony, I feel like you a couple of times you've you've had to answer this a few different ways. So I'm kind of curious what you what you're thinking maybe unlocks this movie for new audiences. Considering that you know the easy question will start, it's on Tubi. You can watch it on Tubi right now. You can even have the the phone breaks uh, built in via the commercials, so that's good. But there's a difference between, as we always discuss on the show, between something being accessible and something being top of mind for viewers. So how do we make this top of mind? God, it's just, just this is this movie has be officially become one of my pet projects where like we all have those films where it's like more people should know about this one. I'm going to find excuses to bring this one up in conversation, um, especially because I work at a movie theater slash video store. So mm-hmm. it's just like, hey, do you all want to hear about a, a, a vampire cowboy that plays billiards and sing? <laughs> and they're like, what? Um, there's that, but I think it just wasn't available for a long time. There is a physical DVD of it that I did buy. And I will say that, um, I don't know if it's just my copy, but it's not very good. The movie seems to run at 20 frames per second and it plays like ass. So that sucks. And also it has no subtitles and some of that cockney is a little thick. So Tubi is currently the best way to watch this, uh, commercials and all, but oh, no, I'm sorry. 
I have to interrupt you there. The subtitles in Tubi are fucking trash. There are times where like oh, they're basically yeah. it's it switches to like singing in a foreign language. I'm yeah. like, no, no, that's still English. It's, I, it's like, clearly I English. It's just it. some subtitles are better than no subtitles. <laughs> I, yeah, subtitles. I don't know. This kind of pushed that envelope where I was just yeah. like, you can't just be like, we didn't get it, so it's not English. Like, no, it's English. <laughs> just, just put like unintelligible. That's fine. Yeah. Sorry. Keep going. I, I think that's that just the auto the auto subtitles that are done for it. But um, I I think that unfortunately a lot of things exist on Tubi and you have to go looking for them. I think if we could pull it out of Tubi and it end up somewhere better, like, you know, someone, someone could restore this. Um, Cause I think that this movie with a good restoration would be stunning. Um, like it's, it's a little grainy. It's a, a little cheap looking, but that's also some of its charm. But like these shots, this lighting, I think that this movie could do with like a restoration and be so well rewarded for it. I think that could put it on people's radar. It's technically a horror movie, which is how we technically ended up here. Um, Maybe Shudder would want to put it on there. Like they've had like black roses. Fuck it. Let's throw this on there too. Why not? Um, Then people will write reviews going, it's not scary. (laughs) One star. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I think, I think word of mouth and managing to get it to graduate from just existing on Tubi is a good start. Yeah, I actually watched this on Shout TV streaming service because it was on Tubi and I had exactly 90 minutes to watch this movie before this recording. Well, <laughs> and I did not have time for the commercials. For the commercials? Because it's exactly like a 90 minute movie. It's like 92 yeah. minutes. <laughs> so I was like, wait, where else is this streaming? And I so it's on the Shout TV edition to Prime Video. So I was like, yeah, okay. let's do that there. Uh, streaming, very good quality. Like, I mean, obviously it's still the VHS rip or whatever you want to say of it. It hasn't been restored, but you know, Stream with good quality. So still, though, who has the Shout TV add-on to Prime Video? Like, it, it's one of those things where it just kind of lives in obscurity. Um, if this ever comes out on Terrorvision in the next year, no, that's because I'm going to start texting Brad Henderson right after this recording <laughs> to be like, yo, uh, I think you need to release this, and I'm absolutely writing something for it. So, like, that's good. happening. <laughs> um, yeah, so when this comes out eventually in a restoration in 4K or some shit, um, you can thank me because I'm going to harass the hell out of Brad Henderson to do that. But good. That's what it, I appreciate it, what it your needs. service. <laughs> it's what it needs. So it, it, there's no life for something like this without the archival, just whatever you want to say. Like, I don't know. Somebody was tweeting the other day about how like showing off your physical media is like capitalist or some shit. And it's, it's not actually cool or something, but like, I, I think it's quite the opposite actually. Like if they did a really good release of it and people just started tweeting about it and just showing like, Oh yeah, like I actually own this insane ass movie. Like that that does speak word of mouth and stuff like that. So I think that's that's the way. It's it's gotta be the physical, super insane, bulked up release that puts it on every collector's radar. And once the collectors start talking about it, then other people will start discovering it. I think I I'm gonna give an answer I haven't given um before, which is always fun when I get to do that. I think that this would be really well served, at least initially, because it's a musical and it comes in these like easily segmented chunks. I think this would be really fun as a pre-show. Like oh, at, yeah. a dra- at a draft house, at I don't know if idiots does like pre-roll kind of stuff before movies too, like some kind of a pre-credits package. Because I feel like a lot of times I see that stuff. I mean it wasn't that long ago that some like older Nick Cage releases were sort of like fodder for pre-show type stuff. And then they became more popular and now they're regarded as well. A lot of times those like, you know, art house, uh, grindhouse kind of like pre pre trailer packages, uh, can be sort of a stealth infection vector 
for the films and the movies and the scenes and stuff to actually become like mainstay types uh, of movies for collectors. So I would love to see somebody, you know, rip a couple of those musical numbers from YouTube or Tubi or wherever it is, throw that in front of the next, you know, kind of camp musical or high profile rock musical or something that shows, put it in front of, you know, if Taylor Swift's movie comes back into theaters <laughs> in Q1 of this year, put this as part of the prepackage for that. I think the audience would be utterly perplexed. But I think it's it's the rare kind of instance where that would do a lot that would do a lot of good. I think it would get the movie, get the scenes in front. People would walk out being like, "What the hell was that like vampire pre-show thing?" And that would be how it introduces to a lot of folks. So that's my answer for this one. Um, and I will say too, I want to give a shout out. In my digging around and research, there's not a lot of times where I feel like Donato and I, based on the premise of the show, can be like out niched. But I think we were out niched on this one. Because there is a website, it looks like it's somebody's personal blog that is dead now, RIP, but like a lot of love for you, um, that was called Make Mine Criterion. It's makemindcriterion.wordpress.com. And they fan casted an entire special features release for this film on Arrow videos, <laughs> including special making of features, uh, one of them being making BTK, extensive interviews on the film's making with cinematographer Clive Tickner, composer George Fenton, production designer Jamie Leonard, costume designer Tudor George. Uh, Sports Life Stories, Jimmy White, an ITV documentary on Jimmy White, the inspiration for Billy the Kid, archival interview with Ray Dracula Reardon, the inspiration for Maxwell Randall on the eve of the 1981 Snooker Championship. This thing goes on. There's like a whole like it, it is basically their version of the, you know, the press release you get with all the special features loaded onto the DVD. <laughs> they went all in. And so whoever the hell you are, if you were running Make Mine Criterion, if this was your baby, we saw what you did. We respect what you did. We would buy the shit out of that Blu-ray arrow. We, we think it, maybe it's a good idea. I mean, arrows British, like this would be probably a good, good fit for them. Like as far as nicheness is concerned, I don't know if y'all keep a track record of this, but have you done movies that have literally zero rotten tomato reviews before? Cause this one has I, none. I want to say, yes. I want to say there's one or two we have looked at that, that don't, I mean like real direct to video mid two thousands, where did this even come out and how mm-hmm. kind of film? So like there are a few, but yes, this is one yeah. of many, sorry, this is one of the few that we have. Gotcha. And every now and then we, we, the people we like that come on the show that want to do something like pre two thousands, we're totally cool with. That's probably the best chance that we have is some of that stuff that came out in like the eighties there was no like archival Rotten Tomato stuff. Um, and then they just haven't gotten around to like backlogging, you know, whatever kind of contemporary reviews might have come out. So nothing jumps to mind, though. It's a good question. I think we'll need to figure that one out. Donato. Maybe we'll put that in the bumper as to, to there's a question coming up you want to know the answer to. And the answer is this because that's fun. Harmony, you are, I feel like we, we need to have like a green jacket or something for folks that come on. You're part of the three timers club now. It was so exciting to get to talk to you again. It's so exciting to have just another really fun you bring us fucking fun movies not everybody brings us fun movies I i've say. gathered that <laughs> that is we we appreciate you for that and i want to give you a chance to to hype up anything you've got going on um you know with this ends of prom or anything that might be going on in video it's just an opportunity where people can connect with you on social media and see what might be in the pipeline for you um yeah i mean so i host this ends at prom with my wife bj who's been on the show a couple times now um, and we talk about teen girl movies that she grew up watching and loving. And, you know, we've, we've extended that. We've gone all the way back to, I think black Christmas 74 is the oldest movie. And we're talking about stuff as recently as like 2023, um, soon to be 2024 when we inevitably do mean girls, the musical. 
and we just talk about how they they hold up in their era the the, the gender and the sexuality of it and really try to give a, a lot of love to a much maligned genre there our own version of what you all do here and if you want to follow that, uh, that's at This Ends at Prom on social media. And I'm at Velocitraptor on Twitter and Instagram. So, like, I'm around. Sometime this year, I think in the first quarter, the sleep book about Sleepaway Camp that me and my wife spent way too long writing should be coming out. And I don't know when, but if you want to follow me, then I'll have an update for you as soon as I know. That's very exciting. I feel like I miss out on stuff now. I know you guys had announced that a while ago, but I'm worried I'm going to miss it because I'm not super active on Twitter anymore. So fine. Either Donato, <laughs> you are in charge of telling me when BJ and Harmony's book is available for pre-order, please. Dude, even I've kind of tapered off on the, on the bird, whatever mm -hmm. the X, whatever you want to talk about it. And yeah, it's, it's just a hellscape. I mean, That's we'll post good. it other places. It's That's fine. Around. Yeah, yeah, we'll see that. We'll see that. BJ's yeah. BJ's been more active on Blue Sky, which I'm really happy about because I, yeah. get, to, I get to see her content over there now too. Oh so. yeah, I'm also on Blue Sky at Harmony Colangelo. I don't post it. I forget about that one a lot. I think I talk more shit on that one, which is fun. Yeah, it's got it's a small. small it's got a smaller that, fan yeah. base, so that means I can get away with saying shit. <laughs> yeah, uh, Donato, what you got in the pipeline? What do you want to share today? Uh, same handle as always at Donato Bomb on Twitter, Letterboxd, X, whatever you want to call it. Twitter, X, Letterboxd, uh, Blue Sky, TikTok, Instagram, all the, all the socials. You can find me at Donato Bomb. And then, yeah, it's just been a lot of catch up for the end of the year for the last like two weeks. So I just posted some like end of year recaps on a few different sites. Um, hit up my authority if you just want to know where they all are, because I, I don't even know where I posted half my shit. And yeah, I have like five pieces hitting this week alone, so I don't fucking know what's going on. I have so much to do. So just follow me and I'll tell you where it is. <laughs> Great. So Donato's at the status quo over there, like barely controlled chaos, um, which we love to see. As for myself, you can follow me on Blue Sky. I think it's Monogle, whatever. I don't remember. Um, I don't spend a lot of time looking at my own profile, but you can find me. I'm on there. As always, you can go to certifiedforgotten.com and check out some of the excellent writing that we're publishing week in and week out. I would also strongly, strongly encourage folks to go check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash certified forgotten, because we have recently added a free tier just for our newsletter. We got the fuck off of Substack. We're not going back to Substack. So if you want to sign up, it won't cost anything. You don't have to put in any kind of credit card information. It's just your email address. You'll get our newsletter delivered to your inbox every week, where we basically give you a little behind the scenes peek of what we've been up to the decision process that went into greenlighting some of the pieces. It's always fun to see what people pitched um, and how the, the original, the actual piece turned out too. So certifiedforgotten.com, visit us at patreon.com slash certifiedforgotten. You make our world go around and we appreciate you. Thank you very much. I'm going to go out of the limb here, say Harmony, that this is not the last time we're going to have you on the podcast. So until time number four, it was great to see you. We'll see you again soon. Well, thank you for having me. I look forward to whatever nonsense I find for another fun movie to bring. The bar has gotten impossibly fucking high. So good luck to you. <laughs> Donato, take us out. <laughs> <laughs>